There is an interesting quote by Hercule Poirot, the fictional detective that appears in many of Agatha Christie's murder mystery novels. There are things that my profession has taught me, he says, and one of these things, the most terrible thing, is this. Murder is a habit. One reading of this is that once we kill, once that line is crossed, we begin to see killing as a viable solution to our problems. We resort to death as our response to what we face in life, and murder becomes a habit. And when Cain murdered his brother Abel, murder became humanity's habit. So let's continue this Genesis narrative on our descent in What Do You Mean God Speaks? where we explore important ideas, insights, and stories in Christianity for the skeptics who want to understand religion, to the Christians who have questions about their own beliefs, and everyone in between. I am Paul Sungwajang, and this is our eighth episode of the second season, When Death Becomes Your Response, From Cain to Lamech. What is it like to hear from God as Cain did? How would it happen? to fume at how your life is unfolding, then somehow, in some way, hear God speak to you and recognize those words as God speaking, and then go against it. Now, one key reason why those of us today have trouble understanding what it would be like to hear God speak is our tendency to think of it as some sort of special mystical thing that most of us won't experience. So we imagine it as an unearthly voice, for example, that speaks to us, maybe in a vision or a dream. And it may happen that way, but it encompasses much, much more than that. That's because what is fundamental to the idea of God with a capital G is that our relation to reality as a whole is our relation to God. So it's how we relate to life, uh, to how everything unfolds, or however else you call it. That's what I mean when I say all of reality, so everything that happens, is in some way God speaking. But then the hard question is, just what is God speaking to us through whatever that happens? What is whatever that happens really telling us? Here's what I mean. So, say, you've been running this business. You put quite a lot of yourself into it, your time, effort, and goodwill. But it's not doing well. Not terribly, but not as well as you wanted. Your product received mixed reviews, your outreach to the community was met with lukewarm responses, and your sales are mediocre. Your work has led to one setback after another. It has produced more thorns and thistles than you expected. Meanwhile, your little brother opened a new business with rave reviews and roaring revenue. Now, all of what's happening is God speaking. But what is all of it telling you? Is it that you should be patient regarding the thorns and the thistles of your work and continue what you're doing? Or is it that you need to rethink your business model, maybe learn from your brother, even though that will sting your pride quite a bit? Or is it that you've not set your priorities straight and is obsessed about the wrong things like the success of your business? Or is it that you've just been treated unfairly your entire life? So, which is it?
And that's the story of Cain, by the way. Cain brought some of his crops, and his little brother Abel brought the best of his livestock. Now, what they're bringing in is not offering in the sense of, you know, donating to the church or whatnot, since there's no church, there's no organized religion. Rather, this is about bringing their life and work before God, which is to say they are both engaging reality as a whole by bringing their lives, their strength and hearts and minds into it. The Genesis narrative does not specify what happened afterward. It only says that God had regard for what Abel brought, while God had no regard for what Cain brought. Perhaps Cain then had a poor harvest of crops with thorns and thistles growing in his fields, while Abel's flocks of livestock flourished. And after all, figures like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the later narratives of Genesis had flocks of livestock that they had multiply and flourish as a sign that God blessed them. But it could have been the opposite. Maybe Cain was doing well, materially speaking, while Abel was just getting by, yet somehow Cain felt rejected or disregarded in some inexplicable way. So, say you are Cain. Now, before you were born, your parents had consumed the knowledge of what possible things, good or evil, may happen in their lives, that is, what God may speak. But they did so, they took that knowledge in their distrust of God, and their moment of distrust has become your starting point. So, if you bring your life and work to God, will God respond favorably? Which is to say, if you engage reality in good faith with all your heart's mind and strength and soul, will life unfold good things for you? Maybe. I mean, how do you know? What if God does not respond favorably? After all, God may be a potential enemy. Then you will have brought all of that for nothing. But your brother Abel, he brings everything, the best of what he has to life, to God. He's either fearless or just naive. Then life unfolded differently for both of you. How? Well, perhaps you just feel empty. There's no sense of fulfillment, no peace, just restlessness, as if your very way of living is lacking something. Abel, on the other hand, seems to love his life, his work, and his, even his daily routine. It's like he has this inner sense of approval while you don't. Or perhaps it is something more tangible, like thorns and thistles in your fields while your brother's flocks multiply. Either way, you are angry. Why is this happening? And what is God speaking to you through what's happening? Is it that God has regard for life and work that Abel brought, but has no regard for yours? But if so, why? You brought yourself to God too. You engage reality. You put in some of your strength and heart and soul into it. It's not like you didn't do anything at all. Then something within you speaks up. Why are you angry? Why do you look so dejected? The thought is calm, sober, yet firm, and it is painfully honest. If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you don't, sin is crouching at the door, desiring to rule you, but you must rule over it. Everything that happens is God speaking, speaking them into being. But what speaks personally to us is about what these things mean to us, and what is meaningful for us is mostly about how we are to act and live in response to what happens in our lives. 
There are thorns and thistles in our lives. That's God speaking, but that's something impersonal. God speaking to us is about what we are to do regarding it. Should we consider them as signs that we are on the wrong path? Or should we persevere with our work? So you feel empty and unfulfilled at work. That's simply what's happening, and that's God speaking. But God speaking to you will be about why you feel that way and what you need to do. Have you been doing things wrong, or have you been doing the wrong things? And because what speaks to us in a personal way is about how we are to live in regard to what is happening, God speaking to us will manifest a person, a character, which models and teaches the kind of life that we should lead. In the episode 10 and 10.10 of the first season, I said that the voice of God speaking to you will manifest a person who will be something like a better version of yourselves. A person that you could be and are called to become. And that person beckons to you toward a life and a mode of being, for the lack of better words, that relates to reality, to the world, to other people, to yourself more truthfully, more courageously, more lovingly with patience and grace. And it's not that you'll become perfect right then and there. The question that this person that shows God asks is, can your life and the world be better than it is now, more loving, more truthful, more just? And if yes, why isn't it now? Now, is this what we nowadays call conscience? Not quite. If by conscience we simply mean a list of rules about do's and don'ts that we've somehow internalized in ourselves, then conscience is not the voice of God that speaks to us. The obvious reason is that this voice speaks as a person, not as rules and regulations, and it is a person that you are called to become. Then what if by conscience we mean an inner voice that personifies your ideals? Well, still not quite. That's because this better version of you that you're called to become, your ideal you, is not quite God per se. Because once you become that person, there is yet better version of you that beckons you onward. And that is how it will be every time. So more precisely put, God will forever speak to you through that person that you can become, continually inviting you on a journey. And this journey is what the Bible calls walking with God, and what Christians call following after Jesus Christ. And there may be times when you will falter, and times when you will just plop down saying you're too tired and you can't go on, and that's fine. Well, perhaps not fine, but God will wait, continuing to reach toward you, beckoning you, speaking to you, sometimes gently and sometimes firmly and sometimes urgently. And so something within Cain addresses him in his anger and dejection, and it is a better version of him, you could say, through which the voice of God personally speaks to us. And this voice says, you know what you're lacking. What God says, uh, according to Genesis, is notably lacking in detail. There's no mention of what Cain specifically needs to do, such as say, you need to bring a better or different offering. It is as if God was saying, Cain, you already know. 
your relation with reality, your world, your life can be more than it is now and you know why it isn't and you know how to change it. And it is here that what we call conscience has some connection with what God speaks to us. Conscience is about what we ourselves already know is right or at least know as far as we can right now. What God speaks is far more than what conscience can tell us because God speaks what we may not know yet and perhaps what we may never know. And our conscience may be misled, misinformed, or in some cases even malformed. We have moral compasses, yes, but there's no guarantee that our compasses won't break or was a bad product to begin with. So, uh, say, if according to your compass, the north star is shining in the west and the sun is rising in the north, then you should stop and look around and check your bearings and probably get a new compass. But if that's not what's going on, and you're just ignoring your compass, then you will become lost in your journey. See, if you're ignoring your conscience about what you yourself believe right now to the best of knowledge to be right, then your conscience may still be wrong, yeah, but you are definitely wrong. God speaks to Cain, and what God speaks is what his conscience also says. You know where you've been going wrong. A better version of himself through which God beckons to Cain is saying, bring your life, bring your work in the way you already know you should, and you know God will have regard for what you will bring. And God speaking to us is more than just the voice that speaks within us. For Cain, God also spoke through the life of his little brother Abel. Cain likely wanted to think that God had regard for what Abel brought only because God favored Abel over him. But God speaks up saying, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? See, Cain didn't need to be Abel. Cain can instead do what Abel has done. How Abel relate to God, to reality, to life is a better version of Cain that he could yet become. God, however, adds, Watch out! Sin is crouching at your door and desires to rule over you, but you must rule over it. Because the voice of God has competition. And that competition says, Can God be trusted? Will God respond favorably if you change? Maybe God still won't have regard for what you bring no matter what. What then? And why should you change? Why should reality be like this, that what you brought to it so far just isn't good enough? Why should the world be like this, that you need to humble yourself and learn, and learn from your little brother? How humiliating, how frustrating, if only, if only Abel didn't exist. If only my little brother was never born, or maybe if I was never born, then I wouldn't have to experience all of this. Even if thorns and thistles grew in my field, even if I felt unfulfilled, empty, and lacking, if Abel didn't exist, I wouldn't have to think that I have a problem, that my relation to reality, that what I brought to God was deficient and wrong. I wouldn't need to feel like a failure if only Abel didn't exist, if only God didn't speak Abel into being, if only God didn't speak. And so Genesis reports that Cain then said to Abel, let's go out to the field. And then when they were in the field, Cain killed Abel. 
What God spoke to him was this, Cain, you are better than that. You can become someone whose life and work will be meaningful. God will yet have regard for what you bring. You know this yourself already. But Cain ignored that voice. He does more than just ignore it. He kills that voice within himself. And there is something irrevocable about killing. You can falter, and you can stop, and you can even plug your ears for a while to the voice that speaks to you. But you can also reject what it speaks so completely and with such finality that it will not speak those words to you again. The problem is, even as he kills that voice of God within himself, God is still speaking through his little brother Abel. How Abel lives will continually embody the words that Cain rejected. So he needs to kill him too. And in the New Testament Gospels, Jesus would include Abel on the list of the prophets and sages through whom God spoke and were killed because of it. Then, once Cain kills Abel, God speaks to him again, but this time God is speaking something else. The Lord speaks, Where is your brother, Abel? I don't know, Cain replies. Am I my brother's keeper? There is something strange about Cain's answer. He doesn't simply lie saying, I don't know. He cannot resist adding, am I my brother's keeper? Which is to say, why should I have to watch over him? And nobody said he should. But the thing is, Cain was his brother's keeper. Abel was his little brother, and he probably followed Cain around as a child, looking up at him with admiration that kids often have for their older siblings. But Cain cast away that role. He cast away his responsibility along with everything that made him Abel's big brother. He cast him away just as he cast away the person that he could have become before God, just as he cast away God that spoke to him. He cast him all away before he killed his brother. He cast him all away so that he could kill his brother. Killing someone kills a part of you. That's part of the deal. It involves discarding every part of you that formed a relationship with that person. And killing what God speaks to you kills what you could have become. And that involves killing every part of you now that would have enabled you to become that person. And so you are left with a piece of yourself. As death takes over the rest, you become lesser. And until you become numb to that loss, you know what you've lost. So Cain snaps at God, only to have God speak. What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground, which swallowed your brother's blood from your hands. No longer will the ground yield crops for you, no matter how hard you work. And you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. God is speaking how life will now unfold for Cain. He has killed and shed blood, and for the ancient Hebrews, blood signified the very substance of life, and the ground the world Cain inhabits had received his brother's life substance, his blood, and what Cain did shapes the world that he will now inhabit. His life and work no longer will bring forth any meaningful fruit. That's because by killing Abel, Cain had killed the very voice that beckoned him toward living that kind of life. Through Abel, God was speaking to Cain, 
of a version of himself that he could become, whose life and work he brings to God will be accepted, a life where he engages reality more truthfully, lovingly, and courageously, and bring forth something worthwhile out of it. But Cain rejected that version of himself and rejected it irreversibly by killing his brother. And that means that this life is now impossible. And the blood, the lost life of his little brother, cries out as a testimony that this is so. And so Cain got his wish. He thought he wouldn't have to feel his failures and frustrations if his brother was never born or if he himself was never born. But now, for him, it will be as if neither of them were ever born. From now on, he wouldn't feel his failures and frustrations because now there is nothing to fail at. He has killed what he was being called to become. That is why God says Cain will now be a restless wanderer. Because Cain no longer has a destination. He has no goal to strive for anymore. No relationship to maintain. He's headed nowhere. And so will simply wander aimlessly, meaninglessly to the end of his life. Genesis then reports that Cain left God's presence and settled in the land of Nod, which means land of wandering. But before he leaves, Cain pleads to God because he is afraid that someone else will kill him too. Cain now realizes and is terrified that, that what he has done to his brother, others can now readily do too. As to where these other people come from is another question, and one I think is not as important. For now, we want to follow what God speaks to him in response. Not so, God speaks. I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. And God puts a mark on Cain as a warning to anyone who would kill him. But why? Well, part of the reason is that according to Christianity, God is always more merciful than we would imagine. But there is another reason. God has been speaking how reality will unfold because of Cain's actions, and what God speaks to Cain about the sevenfold punishment is part of it, which is this. Now that Cain has brought murder into the world, murder is a habit. What God was doing by leaving a mark of warning to protect Cain is, I think, a way to forestall the downward path that humanity was now descending. Cain has responded to what God speaks, to the things he faces in life, the challenges, the frustrations, and even the calling to a better version of himself by irreversibly silencing the voice of God. And with that, death, violence, and rejection now become a viable way humanity will respond to life. Because that's easier. Everything in life that we do not want to face, we'll try to ignore, but when we can do that no longer, we will either have to face them or kill and silence anything or anyone that will somehow make us face them. So instead of engaging reality and everything that unfolds, reject and denigrate everything as worthless. Instead of dialoguing and understanding those who differ from us, vilify and disparage them. Instead of facing up to our own inadequacies and unfulfilled life, pour out our resentment and frustration on those we can get away with blaming our woes, a children or spouse that we can abuse, that migrant worker that's taking away our job, we think, or that co-worker that got a raise that we can slander, or our parents who didn't treat us right. 
because all of that's easier than hearing the call of that voice, that better version of you through which the voice of God beckons to us saying, if you do what is right, won't God have regard for what you've brought? What if this example that Cain set becomes the norm? What if more people do what Cain has done and kill those around them who are like Abel and by doing so kill the very person that they could have become, that version of themselves through which God was beckoning? What if doing that becomes something like a point of boasting so that life itself, the way that Abel lived, becomes something to be sneered at, to be mocked and jeered? See, Genesis reports that in his meaningless wandering, Cain builds a city, and his descendants live in it, and they become the builders of civilization. And the greatest among them was Lamech, and as the first display of his power, he takes two women as his wives, and they bear him three sons and a daughter. According to Genesis, one of his sons was the first of all who played a harp or a flute, the first musician. Another son is depicted as the first to raise livestock. But what about Abel that brought the first of his flock to God? Well, remember that I said that this may be a figurative way of saying that Abel brought his life and work before God? Anyway, Lamech's third son was the first metalsmith, forging tools and weapons of bronze and iron. The daughter was named Nama, which means beauty or pleasure, and thus likely the bringer of arts and, well, pleasure. And Lamech, who is now depicted as the father of music, arts, pleasure, animal husbandry, and metalcraft, sings this song to his two wives. He says, I've killed a man for attacking me, and a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold... I will be avenged 77-fold. When Cain murdered his brother and God declared that no one is to use that as justification to kill him and that those who do will be punished sevenfold, that's because that's how violence works. An act of violence pushes one to a harsher retribution and that retribution will then be met with even greater violence. That is how blood feuds work, for example. But now Lamech, the father of civilization, deliberately invokes the words God spoke to Cain. Cain is avenged sevenfold, but I'll be sure to avenge myself seventy-sevenfold. Any opposition he faces will be dealt with by killing. A mere attack or a single wound will merit death. And he celebrates this violence and the casual disregard for life in a song to the two women that he now possesses. Murder by those who are powerful have now become the norm. It has become a habit, a hobby, and a sport. Violence has become the go-to response to all opposition. Death has become the answer to life. And this has become the foundation of human civilization built by Cain. And such a world inevitably unravels. So please join me next time as we continue to explore the slow, unnoticed unraveling of the world as we follow the line of humanity after Cain and Abel, eventually to Noah, and to the Great Flood. Thank you for listening, and please continue to support this series by following, subscribing, and sharing this series with others. 
Also, please take a moment to rate or review this series on Apple Podcasts or other platforms, especially those of you who's listening outside Canada. And you can also support this series by buying me coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com/paulsoc. The link is provided in the episode description.